Coming up on Nurse Talk. How do you define beautiful? Author and visionary behind The Beautiful Project is with us today. What? A new musical? You won't want to miss this one. And one of our favorite guests, RN and baby nurse Marsha Pods, with us today. All this and more today on Nurse Talk. Welcome to Nurse Talk. I'm Casey Hobbs. And I'm Shane Mason, and we're two of the thousands of nurses on duty today. Shane, a great big thank you to all of our listeners on Progressive Voices TuneIn and all of our broadcast partners. And first up, a new musical. We're nurses. Why would we care about a musical? You're so right, Shane, because I absolutely hate musicals, so I don't know why I would care about them. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what we can comment on is the two wonderful guests we have with us today. In just a short while, we'll be talking with Naomi Katz, who is a visionary behind The Beautiful Project, a movement dedicated to building self-confidence in women and girls. Naomi has written a book titled Beautiful, Being an Empowered Young Woman. And later, we'll be joined by one of our favorite guests, RN and author of Secrets of a Baby Nurse, Marsha Pod. And Casey, don't go to sleep like you did last time she was here. (laughs) Parents and grandparents of newborns and toddlers stick around as we chat with Marsha about baby sleep and some interesting other findings such as, does baby bottle size predict weight gain? And do family moves mean more hospital visits for babies and young children? But first, Casey, we've been called into battle to lift the veil of secrecy and talk about... The new musical we mentioned at the top of the show. That's right, and it's called... Martin... Shkreli's... Game. (laughs) The show will center on the infamous Pharma's CEOs. The new musical titled Martin... Shkreli's game will tell a fictional story imagining that heist. The musical's website features sneak peeks at seven songs, including one called I'm Martin Shkreli. (laughs) And you can all go screw yourselves and cry me a river losers. Shkreli 33 (laughs) rocketed to global notoriety last year when his company Turing Pharmaceuticals hiked the price of a decades-old drug by more than 5,000%, enraging a sizable faction of the internet and giving Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump something to agree on. Naomi Katz was on her way to teach her 7th grade class when she heard the cat calls that are only too common on the sidewalks of New York. As usual, it made her feel angry and helpless, and it made her wonder, if this is how she felt, how did it affect the girls in her class who were dealing with this at age 13 or 14? Today, we'll talk with Naomi about her new book, Beautiful, Being an Empowered Young Woman. We'll also talk with Miss Katz about The Beautiful Project, a movement dedicated to building self-confidence in women and girls. She is an educator who empowers women and girls to redefine culture by reclaiming the language they use to talk about themselves. Here with us now is Naomi Katz. Naomi, thanks for being with us today. Thank you so much. So first off, we'd like to ask you, how do you define beautiful? Well, I think that actually more than anything else, beautiful is a feeling. It's something internal. It's the way that we feel when we're really excited about how we present ourselves on a particular day or the way that we feel when we see an incredible view, like a beautiful sunset. And it's something that we carry internally, not necessarily a descriptive adjective. Mm, Good point. So can you talk about what you mean by empowering women and girls to redefine culture by reclaiming the language they use to talk about themselves? Sure. So too often we use language that is harsh and judgmental and painful about ourselves and subsequently about the people around us. So, for example, if I look in the mirror in the morning and I'm not totally satisfied with what I see, then I can say, oh, oh, 
I look so fat, or I don't like the way my hair is. Bad hair and, day. And that's painful. Mm-hmm. And then I carry that with me the whole day. And that feeling also is transmitted to the other people around me. And I probably think and probably also talk about them in the same way. But I can feel unsatisfied with what I see, but say, you know, I think I'm going to work out more, or I'd like to eat healthier. And by doing those very small, very subtle things, by speaking in those, with those subtle differences, we can change our culture. So what are some of the, the main challenges facing teenage girls today, and how's the Beautiful Project combating those challenges? I think that the biggest challenge facing teen girls today is the way that they are pressured by the media in particular, and of course also by their peers, but because of the media, to objectify and sexualize themselves to present themselves in a way that's really not natural for probably anyone, but certainly not for young women, and also create pressure in that way, create pressure for boys to see them that way too. And the presence and popularity of social media is only compounds that pressure. It's, it's a daunting task you've taken <laughs> on, just because it's so inherent in our very culture, how we treat women and how we teach each other. So talk a little bit about your mission to banish the taboos about discussing teen sexuality and help girls stand up to peer pressure, because that's really tough. Well, it's interesting that you bring that up, because actually today I'm beginning a two-day retreat for girls called Real Talk About Sex, where myself and my colleague are trying to open up a conversation with teenage girls about healthy sexuality. What does it mean to express myself sexually in a healthy way? How do the pressures to sexualize, to objectify, to project my persona in a particular way affect me? And how do I actually really want to be? And that second question is the most important. How do I want to be treated? How do I want to represent myself? And as soon as I connect with that, then I carry that everywhere that I go. Whether I'm a teenager and I carry it with me at school or in my group of friends or as an adult, I carry it with me to work or with my family. If I have a real close and clear connection with the way that I want to be treated and the way that I want to represent myself, then that projects itself everywhere that I go. And you use uh, comedian Amy Schumer, which I love. Can you say more about how you use her as an example? Sure. What a good choice. Um, one of Amy's greatest clips, in my opinion, is one called Compliments. I don't know if you've seen it, but it was mm-hmm. on her uh, Comedy Central show, Inside Amy Schumer. Yeah. And a bunch of young women meet each other, friends, meet each other on the street. And one, you know, the first one encounters the second one. And she says, oh, wow, great, great top. And, oh, no, this old thing. And then, et cetera, et cetera, all of the friends deflecting compliments until, like, the tenth one appears on the street. And somebody says to her, great hat. And she just says, Thanks. And all of the, I mean, it's a bit vulgar, Amy Schumer style, but all the rest of them basically erupt in a violent (laughs) suicidal spree because they can't imagine that someone would just say thanks to a compliment. Yes. (laughs) So in your book, Beautiful, you talk about four specific actions women and girls can take to feel more empowered every day. Uh, What are those and how important is this to shifting the culture? Uh, It's essential to shifting the culture. And the actions that we can take, first of all, every day, as cheesy as it may sound, affirm who you are. Start the day by looking in the mirror and smiling. It's so simple and so important. Then take that internal affirmation outside into the world where you are and be a model of self-esteem for others. And this one is huge because if I am a model of self-esteem and it's actually cool and acceptable to be proud of who I am, then that has a tremendous impact, especially for teenagers, on the friends with which I spend my time, with whom I spend my time, and just the social circle where I find myself. 
in order to be a model of self-esteem, going back to what I said before about the language, really pay attention to the language that we use to talk about ourselves and really use language that's empowering and that's strengthening even when we're talking about something we want to change. And lastly, when you see beauty, when you see something that you appreciate in a friend of yours, tell her so that she carries with her that positive feeling that then will reverberate to the next person, the next person, the next person. I think that's so important because um, as women, we are so highly critical and our, our culture teaches us to be that way. And, you know, that bit that you did about Amy Schumer is so true, how we even hold a compliment um, and how we hold it for each other. So very important. Absolutely. I think also the, the whole competition aspect is a really powerful and sometimes dangerous trap, particularly for young women, because what especially teenage girls really need is close friendship. Because we're in this phase, when we're teenagers, we're in this phase of rebelling against our parents, finding ourselves, trying to figure out who we are, and the people who understand us the best are our friends. But if we're in a situation with our friends where we're constantly competing with one another, we're constantly judging one another, then we don't have that level of comfort to be able to cultivate ourselves the way we really need to in that really transformative age. And so that's actually the foundation of my work, creating a safe space for girls to talk to one another without judgment and without criticism in order to really open up and understand that we're all in the same boat. And also for adult women, the things that our daughters are dealing with are not unique to them. We face them as well. We just have different coping mechanisms now. And opening up that honest conversation with them as well is really powerful. We're talking with author and founder of The Beautiful Project, Naomi Katz. The book's titled Beautiful, and it's a guide that offers strategies and stories to successfully navigate the complicated world of female adolescence and developing a strong sense of self. The website is beautifulproject.net. Naomi, is there anything else you'd like to share? I just want to say thank you very much, and remember that it's in our hands to change the culture in which we live, starting with the way we see ourselves. It's important work that you're doing. Thank you so much. Thank you. Again, the book can be found at beautifulproject.net. Naomi Katz, thank you for being with us today. You're listening to Nurse Talk, and we'll be right back with the baby nurse, R.N. Marsha Pod. Don't go away. day, safety was your responsibility. You either held tight or you went through the windshield. Now it's time for In My Day with comedian Lynn Ruth Miller. Sit back and enjoy a walk down memory lane with a twist of spice included. And now, In My Day. In my day, we all gathered in the dining room promptly at six and my mother served an immense homemade dinner. She would start our meal with huge plates heaped with spaghetti and meatballs and lots of garlic bread for us to sop up that tomato sauce. She'd bake a casserole of cream cauliflower and beans with lots of butter, cheddar cheese, and whole milk to go with it. For dessert, she made a pineapple upside-down cake with full-fat milk, eggs, and butter, and lots of brown sugar and canned pineapple in heavy syrup. She topped the whole thing with a big scoop of vanilla ice cream, whipped cream, and a touch of caramel. You could barely move from that table when you finished eating, but there wasn't a single one of us who didn't lick our plates clean. My mother would look at our expanding waistlines and she'd say, you can solve that with a good corset. In those days, the ladies wore whalebone corsets and the young girls wore merry widows to make them look like Scarlett O'Hara. 
The Merry Widow was a corset invented by Rasputin, who wanted to use it on his wives before he hung them in the basement by their hair. It was a sexy little contraption, meant to cram all your body fat into a narrow tube until your waist measured 18 inches. It was a torture to wear, but it pushed all your body fat up into the brassiere section, and it gave you cleavage, which would have been super, but it turned me blue, and that was how I got my first mouth-to-mouth. The Merry Widow had long garters on it to hold up your stockings. No pantyhose back then. But the garters snapped like slingshots if you weren't careful, and they didn't work if you were skinny like me. Once I hooked the garters to my stockings, the entire contraption slid down to my knees, which made me look like I had to go to the bathroom something fierce. To prevent that from happening, I stuffed the bodice of my Merry Widow with bath powder mitts, and when my dates grabbed me and pulled me close, mushroom clouds of powder would erupt from my bosom, and my dates would say, Gee, Linny, you smell good. I would blush and say, Oh, let's not talk about me. Let's talk about you and what you plan to do to earn a living. And this is Lynn Ruth Miller with three crushed ribs, garter scars, and another edition of In My Day. You're listening to Nurse Talk, where laughter's the best medicine. We are nurses, so we cannot diagnose, prescribe, or treat. But listen to us anyway, because we like to talk. (laughs) Are you a sleep-deprived parent? Are you up at all hours of the night with your baby or young child, trying to soothe them back to sleep? Did you know that sleep is just as important as good nutrition? I'm Marsha Pod, author of Secrets of a Baby Nurse, How to Have a Happy, Healthy, and Sleeping Baby from Birth. It's important to teach your baby to sleep through the night. Oh, welcome back to Nurse Talk. I'm Casey Hobbs, along with Shane Mason. Sorry, I just nodded off. Her voice does something to me. We are two of the thousands of nurses on duty today. And here with us is RN and author of Secrets of a Baby Nurse, Marsha Pod. Always great to have you with us, Marsha. Thank you. It's always fun to be here. So I know we talk about the baby sleep basics each time you're here, but those of you who haven't heard the conversations, let's go over some of the fundamentals. So let's talk, if you would talk a bit about two months before a baby arrives, what should people be doing? So this is a really important time because women start nesting and it's a great time to really look at your baby's room. Where are they going to be sleeping? Maybe not in the first months, but maybe eventually. So when you're planning your child's room, it's important to look at how dark it's going to be. Do you, did you get the right blinds or curtains? Because you need it really dark? Really dark. Do you? Darkness buys you extra sleep time, especially in the spring when there's light sleep patterns, you know, for many hours. So very important to have a dark space. And then the next thing is what what kind of sounds does that child hear in that room if they're going to be there 24 hours, you know, sleeping off and on. So think about that. Do you have barking dogs in your house? Do you have a lot of uh, delivery trucks? Or do you live in a big city? Mm-hmm. All of those things or siblings in the house, that means you should have a sound machine. Help block the sounds of that Mm, out because big sounds on top of a constant sound tend to just blend and kids learn to sleep much better when they hear sound on top of sound. So I'm a big believer of sound machines. So many families have told me great things about them for insomnia, even work great for adults. (laughs) Mm -hmm. If you get the right sound machine with low tones that are slow, Mm-hmm. Sounds like driving down the freeway or in a jet plane. Those are the best. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a humming vibration thing as well as the sound. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, that's nice. I, I I always have some sort of white noise when I yeah. sleep. Like I yeah a fan. From, yeah, growing up in Oklahoma, you would either have the fan on or the heater on at all times, and so I just kind of got used to that white noise. Yeah. And now, yeah, it's kind of nice. That's it actually nice. puts your brain into a different pattern, so that allows you to help fall fall into that good sleep. Now, do you think babies should have their own rooms? Okay, so the research shows that every single age group sleeps best in their own rooms. Not that we do that. Right. (laughs) But when you look at good sleep patterns in the brain and also restorative sleep, we all sleep the best when we have our own space, our own bed. Rule of thumb for babies, it's about keeping the baby near the mom the first six months, just so you can be there in case of any issues like, you know, congestion or vomiting. Right. You can hear that. Or... Um, some parents, you know, they don't sleep so well if the baby's in their room. So after two or three months, they are like, can I put this baby in a crib in a different room so I can get some sleep? Yeah. And so, you know, respect that because parents need their own space too. They need to be able to restore themselves. So if they're that kind of a sleeper that can't really handle all the noises babies make, then yes, they belong in their separate space. And then you just use a baby monitor? to Use it. Video monitors. They're oh, the best. wow. Video, Video monitors. Even better. So you yes. don't hear the, They're the yeah. They're the thing. And you just can Didn't put them on realize, your iPhones these days. Yeah. Wow. So if you wake up in the middle of the night and you're wondering what your baby's doing you don't in have there, to wake you just them up. turn on the monitor and you can see them. Which is perfect. You, can you hear don't them, even have to wake them up. You can see them. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> so now the pregnant mom can also take supplements that help induce better sleep patterns probably didn't know that, but there's some research out of the Netherlands that show that women who eat a lot of fish during their pregnancy have kids that actually sleep better and longer right from birth. So so we believe it's the essential fatty acids in fish that make for better sleep patterns. Again, adults can take these, and it also can help sleep for adults. Wow, brilliant. So pregnant women should check to see, you know, what kinds of essential fatty acids their doctors recommend that they be on with pregnancy and how much fish they should consume and what kinds to mm-hmm. be safe because there are some things that you that, shouldn't that eat are too not much good of. In fish, exactly. <laughs> and so, you know, that's that's another way. Sometimes taking calcium supplements can also ensure with magnesium can ensure good sleep. Very interesting. And so are there any other eating habits that parents should try to adopt for themselves or the baby right at the beginning to help with sleep or just overall nutrition? So once the baby's born, the best thing, once it, most moms today are breastfeeding. So once they start initiating good breastfeeding patterns, then I say, you know, look at your cycles of feeding. If you're feeding your baby every two hours, Half that time, your baby should be up and active and feeding and diapered and have some exercise and movement. And half that time, they should be put down, swaddled, and left Mm -hmm. in a quiet place to sleep. And so, you know, the first few months, it's really just about setting up good construction of sleep patterns. And I'm putting you right to sleep. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just talking about sleep. I need my bottle right now. I'm getting a little fussy over here. Indeed. So if the baby has survived to the four or six month mark, what should we be seeing if the parents 
haven't read your book and haven't consulted with you? Well, that's the best time, in my opinion, to really get going with this. So depending on the size of your baby and whether your baby was really born on time, you know, 37 weeks or later, or early, which may delay things a bit, um, but assuming your baby's a normal baby, you can really start off if you've created a good rhythm and a structure, your baby's already understanding about feedings and about naps, they're going to be better cued in to this um, process of mm-hmm. putting down. Mm-hmm. And ideally, from the time your baby's you know, just a newborn, you want to always put your baby down awake okay, and let them learn to fall asleep. If they do that so from birth, it's not going to be a big problem. They're going to already be used to that. But if you feed them to sleep, which, by the way, is a interesting topic in and of itself because there's some research that's come out that shows that the emotional uh, response of women to feed their babies when they cry sets up bad emotional dynamics for later on mm. and which is makes sense. to obesity. Emotion, emotional eating. So, <laughs> so when you're upset and crying, yes. if she gives you that makes total sense. Yeah, if so, she soothes you that way, that's your first soothing technique for being upset. Yeah, and, and you know, my whole book and many sleep experts' books are about do not feed your baby to sleep. Good. Feed your baby to awakeness. Have that connection of fuel up and then activity. So, so much of the emotional body is created in these early months. Yes. So it's, it's funny because I just heard a show this morning about dogs. And they said, even with pets, one of the first things that you should do in those first few months that you bring them home is, you know, teach socialization skills, teach, mm-hmm. you know, these simple emotional skills of being with others or not being with others, yes. how to sleep. All that training happens really early, and we set that down really early in life. We're all animals, so we all have similar, you know, links to behavior and response. We like patterns. We yes. like consistency. Yes. Consistency and predictability. And we like to know when our feeding times are. All, all nature has feeding rhythms. Mm-hmm. And so we need to instill that too and not attach the emotion of crying to it. Because babies cry for lots of reasons, not just because they're hungry. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there's a lot that that really needs to be set into place in those early months. Which is amazing because it's not innate that you know these things. That's the hard part for me. So how do parents know the basics? You know, because it's not like you are born with this guidebook in your head. It would be nice if we were, huh? It would be very nice. (laughs) I, you know, it's an interesting question. And mostly we learn this from our relatives. But here's the problem. You know, when my father years ago was a kid, he was one of six and his mother was one of 13. But here today we have what? Much less. A couple kids? Yes. Okay. So hopefully. And then people have left their families and they've spread out. And so there's not that cohesiveness of parenting Mm -hmm. and cross generation caregiving Mm -hmm. as much in America anyway as there used to be. So a lot of women have not learned those skills from watching and being in a large family and being with their siblings who've had kids. So it's got to be taught. And that's why you have to read The Secrets of a Baby Nurse, because this stuff doesn't come to you automatically. I remember my brother, when he had his first child, he said he was shocked that they let him come home. 
with the baby because he didn't know what he was doing. <laughs> right. He said, "When I, you know, I get a car and they go over all these basic right, right, things right. just to take a car home. And I took this baby home and nobody said anything to me about what right. to do. And he felt so totally lost. Yeah. I so, think that's true of most first-time parents. Yeah, and again, speaking of that, Marsha's book is Secrets of a Baby Nurse, How to Have a Healthy, Happy, and Sleeping Baby. And you can purchase this baby sleep Bible at gotosleepbaby.com. We want to go on to a couple of listener questions, if you don't mind. Okay. Okay, so question number one. I recently read an article, Could the Size of Your Baby's Formula Bottle Make Him Overweight? A new study suggests parents might be able to prevent obesity later in life by changing one simple thing about an infant's diet. Is this true? And what are your thoughts about this? This is from Meg T. in Las Vegas. So this, again, is a very interesting question. Not a lot of research done about it. But we do know that bottle feeding babies tend to be more overweight than breastfeeding Mm. because of one thing. When bottle feeding mothers are looking at their babies and they've made, let's say, an eight ounce bottle for them, they really try and get them to finish it. Yeah, because you think you need to because it's eight ounces. They don't watch for that stopping place when the baby Ah, turns away. They don't want to waste it, okay? Ah. So they're trying extra hard to get that extra ounce or two in that the baby might not really need, but they feel like, yeah, I should push it in. So... That's part of the problem. Breastfeeding moms do not have a clue how many ounces their child has had. They watch for the physical signs and signals that the baby's full, and they are, like, fine with that. So there's usually less overfeeding. Which makes a lot of sense. So it's not necessarily the size of the bottle, then. It's about watching the cues of the child. Yeah. Question number two. What are the most recent findings on SIDS, and what if any baby cribs do you recommend? This is from Jennifer B. in Santa Barbara, California. So SIDS is Sudden Infant Death Syndrome, and it's really a catch-all you know, diagnosis if an infant dies, especially in the first year of life. Um, most SIDS happens in the first six months. Uh, there's always research coming out that explores what goes on in the brain, what's causing this. So true SIDS is usually some defect of some signal that happens in the brain that shuts down the respiratory and the cardiovascular system. So it doesn't have anything to do with the crib. So technically, true SIDS cannot be prevented, Yeah. okay? But because we've also put suffocation deaths in that category, because initially, you know, it's the diagnosis all infants with unexplained death have. Right. So when they explore what really happened here... For instance, this is a really rare event, but recently I read about a baby who died from inhaling breast milk. Really? They drowned, technically. Okay, now you wouldn't know that. But if this was a baby with reflux and had eaten too much and mom hadn't kept him upright and went to put him down and that regurgitation lands in the lung and they inhale it, that technically could happen. So... um, you know, those kinds of deaths or suffocation deaths are defined differently in the end. They're like suffocation or drowning or whatever, but they're all thrown into that potluck SIDS mm-hmm. uh, diagnosis in the beginning. So there's there are lots of preventable, <laughs> preventable deaths. And as far as, you know, this eating and then putting down, that's one of the reasons that I don't recommend people feed their babies to sleep because... That 
is more likely to happen when you feed your baby to sleep. Right, that, that too they much. have a right. super full stomach, and then you go to put them down, and then sometimes they spit up. And so, if you're going to go to sleep and you're not really watching your baby, it's so much safer if you really give a little bit of time, even just 15 minutes after a baby eats, to get the air up, to let the milk settle to make sure that all the spit up has happened before you put your baby down. And if you have a really young baby with reflux, they really should be head elevated. So Very important. there are ways to prevent this kind of thing from happening. Yes. Sad to say this, but when I go visit parents in their home and I look at their cribs and I talk to them about crib safety, unfortunately, I'm going to say half of the parents that I talk to about crib safety don't really think their unsafe crib is an issue. For instance, you don't want any bumper pads in the crib. That's a big no-no now because we know on average 12 babies a year die from suffocation and bumper pads. You need to walk away from that baby at night and close your eyes and go to sleep knowing that there's nothing and nothing hazardous in that crib area. And most parents really respect and care about that. But more more than I'd say 40% of parents I visit have unsafe cribs. We've been visiting with RN and author Marsha Pod. Marsha's book is Secrets of a Baby Nurse, How to Have a Happy, Healthy, and Sleeping Baby. For more information, visit gotosleepbaby.com. Thank you so much for being with us, Marsha. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me. I always like to come. That's all for us today. Thanks for listening, and thank you to our executive producer, Patty Lockard, our sound design and engineering, June Miller, and JMC Sound, and Taylor Lockard, our research assistant. And, of course, National Nurses United and all the nurses on duty today, and, of course, our listeners and guests. Take care and visit us at nursetalksite.com or our Facebook page at Nurse Talk. Thanks for listening to Nurse Talk, where laughter is the best medicine. Brought to you by National Nurses United. Check us out on Facebook or go to our website at nursetalksite.com. For more information about National Nurses United and the California Nurses Association, visit nationalnursesunited.org. Until next week, remember, laughter is the best medicine.